Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 36, The Parting of the Ways. Dumbledore stood up. He stared down at Barty Crouch for a moment with disgust on his face. Then he raised his wand once more and ropes flew out of it. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You know, we're discussing teamwork on our episode today. And in our perks, you and I love to talk about food. So we're going to talk about team meals. When you and I have been part of teams that have tried to cook meals together, and I'm sure we'll tell some delightful stories about our respective experiences. So go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text to sign up and get our Patreon perk. And Matt, I have started our sacred reading Sunday night class. It is so fun. People can still sign up. You can join us in week two. You just have until Sunday the 25th before 6 p.m. Eastern to sign up. But please join us. We're just doing one sacred reading practice with Harry Potter a week, and it's delightful. You can sign up at notsorryworks.com. It's going to be a party. Also, listeners, remember, you can review us on Apple Podcasts, and while you're there, you can subscribe for ad-free episodes as well. Matt, it's your turn to tell a story on the theme of teamwork. What story do you have? Yeah, I've been parts of many teams right now. I'm coaching a Little League baseball team. I'm not sure that the Little League baseball team is a great example of teamwork at my level, or maybe it's a problem <laughs> with the coach. So I'm going to tell a story about an example of like when a team saved me. So in a previous life, I was a college admissions counselor. I worked at Notre Dame. I went to college at Notre Dame. And then I was in the Navy for a while. And then after the Navy, I went back to Notre Dame and worked in college admissions. And, you know, I travel around the country visiting high schools and actually around the world. I've 
traveled to Asia and visited high schools and recruited students. And then in the spring of every year, after admissions offers went out, the selection process would turn to recruiting. And we would try to get students who we'd admitted to choose us. And I was on a team within the larger admissions team, which was interested in recruiting what we then called, you know, over 20 years ago, minority students. Now we call them underrepresented or students of color, right? And we had a lot of programming to try to bring students to campus, to let them get to know the university, to see what opportunities there might be at the university, and help them make like the right decision for their college future and hope that our school would be the right decision for them. And so part of this recruitment weekend, the big like capstone event was a luncheon, a faculty luncheon we'd have. You know, all the students would come to this luncheon and we'd invite faculty from around the university to also come. And I was in charge of a large part of this luncheon, but also in charge and especially in charge of the seating chart for this luncheon. Now, the seating chart was really important because the whole thing was you're trying to get students talking to the right professors. You know, you don't want a student who's interested in studying chemical engineering with the theater arts faculty, right? And so that meant that the seating chart got complicated because, you know, you don't have the exact match on the faculty who are willing to come and the students' interests and whatever. And so I spent a long time with the seating chart. I remember confirming with the university caterers about the seating arrangements, how many seats there would be at every table and everything. And we had this whole very complicated plan. We had name tags printed out. We had a seating chart when people come in. So every faculty person and every visiting student, when they arrived in the space, they would know exactly where to sit. It was all ready to go. We show up, me and my team, at the venue where we're having this luncheon an hour and a half early, right, to kind of get the, the labels and the seating chart up. And we see that at the tables, there are six chairs per table rather than the eight chairs per table that we had been told there would be. <laughs> this was a big disaster. And basically, I just looked at the tables and looked at my chart and then looked at the tables and looked at my chart. <laughs> And then just said, whatever, let them sit wherever they want. <laughs> I was just like, I give up. Chaos. I, I'm Bye. done. The, the easiest and best thing would just be like, just put a trough of food out. Everybody grab your food, sit wherever you want, and let me go home. Because I was, I just, I was, I just checked out, right? I don't know. I mean, you know, I just get to one of those points where you're just like, I can't do I it do anymore. Too. Everyone does. And then everyone, everyone around me just kind of looked at each other and they looked at me. And then I remember one of my friends, Carrie, was just like, okay, you know what? We can handle this. We have time. This is not that big an emergency. Let's figure it out. I was completely unhelpful. She took the chart from me. I remember like gripping it a little bit too tightly and she just kind of yanked it away. And then she went off with a couple of other colleagues and they fiddled with the chart for about 20, 25 minutes. And then we ran around. By then I had recovered a little bit. We ran around putting name tags <laughs> in places and it wasn't great. It was, it was not terrible. It was like a a solid B. It wasn't great, but it was good and it was passable and nobody was the wiser. No faculty person, no student who showed up knew that there had been this mistake and that I had given up and thrown my hands in the air. And the reason why it turned out well is because there were people around me. Like when I had had enough, when I reached my limit, there were people around me who also wanted the event to go well and who were also interested in its success who were able to take the task from me and, <laughs> and, and make, it, make it passable, make it work. Matt, I love that story. That is one of the things about teams. My younger brother watched a lot of WWF wrestling when we were little. <laughs> and that tag team, right? Like, and you're in now because I'm out. 
I think is such an important part of a team. And part of what I love is that you didn't totally know you were tagging out, right? In that moment where you were yeah. holding onto the paper. Yeah. But Carrie was like, no, no, you're tagged out. <laughs> like, yep. boop, boop. There was a short Give tug me. of war with the, with the sheet. <laughs> <laughs> and I yep. love that. I think that that is one of the marks of a good team where you look and you're like, oh, this person needs to be tagged out. I'll step up. I think part of it also was like I had spent so much time focused on it going exactly right when the only possibility was for us to just be OK. Like I couldn't imagine anything otherwise. But other people who were just differently invested yeah. could see a different possibility. They could see like, oh, I see a version of this, which is just OK and pretty good. Okay, Matt, time for the 30-second recap. Tag me in. Okay, three, two, one, go. So Barty Crouch Jr. has told his whole story, and they're like, okay, let's go debrief. The meeting after the meeting is very important, and Dumbledore and Sirius and Harry go up to the office, and Dumbledore is like, you have to tell us everything. And Sirius is like, dude, let the kids sleep. And Dumbledore is like, no, I know more about the grief process. And Harry tells the whole story, and then they go up to the hospital wing, and Dumbledore is like, I'm going to let you sleep. And Harry gets a sleeping draft, and he sleeps, and then when he wakes up, he hears a bunch of fighting going on, and... And um, Buttercrutch Jr. has been kissed by a Dementor, and Cornelius Fudge is like a big jerk, and Molly gives Harry this really beautiful hug, and Harry's up awake. Great job, Vanessa. A lot happened, so I'm counting on you. I'm tagging this you in. This is a long There's a lot. It's a dense Hulk chapter. Hogan tagging in Randy Savage. Is that right? Macho Man Savage. Oh, should I do it in Macho Man Savage voice? Macho Man <laughs> Randy <laughs> Savage. <laughs> <laughs> McGonagall is upset with the Okay, sorry. Three, two, one, go. So Barty's finished the story and McGonagall's is like, this is disgusting. And then they, they, uh, D- Dumbledore's like, let's go to my office with this random dog. And they go to the office and he's not a dog. And he says, you have to tell me the story with some questionable kind of advice about grief. And he tells the whole story. And then they, they, they return to the hospital wing and he's like, Molly, you can't talk to him. And then he drinks the sleeping potion and wakes up and Fudge comes in and Fudge is very upset. And the Dementor sucked out Barty Crouch's soul. And, uh, they're like, we, we need to part ways. And, and, uh, and then something else happens. There was a thing at the end of the chapter, of course, after, oh, yeah, uh, uh, he gets the money, right? Oh, yeah. He gets the money. You can have the money. Anyone can. Poor Bubba. I loved having this theme of teamwork. It was just so helpful to read the chapter with that framework because there's a very interesting moment at the end of the chapter Dumbledore tells Sirius to change from a dog back into his human form. Molly is like, there's now a murderer in this room. Ron tells her to shut up, which we can talk about another time. (laughs) Inappropriate, Ron. And then (laughs) Dumbledore just sort of instructs Snape and Sirius. He's like, bad blood, put away. We're all on the same team here. And in this group of people, Snape, Sirius, Molly, Harry, Dumbledore, a lot of these people don't like each other, like at all, right? Like profoundly hate each other. Now, most of this, of course, is centered around Snape, like Snape hates Harry and Sirius and Sirius and Harry hate Snape. But they have a shared goal, right? Which is beat Voldemort. And Dumbledore is saying, that's it, everyone. We have a shared goal. And the shared goal is kind of a big deal. So everything else doesn't matter right now. Does that make them a team or just a group of people with a shared goal? 
I think that's a really great question. We have to make our visit to Etymology Corner. And teamwork is kind of an obvious etymology. It's working <laughs> together for a team. But we can go a little bit deeper. The word work comes from a root that means to do. And the word team actually comes from the word to lead. It was used to refer to draft animals who would lead the plow through the field. Oh, right? yeah. A team of animals. Yeah. Draft animals often work together. So it was this idea of teamwork. But this is where it gets tricky, right? Because draft animals are actually bound together. Right? They are actually like tied oh. together. If there's another set of draft animals also in the field plowing the same field, but plowing a different row, that's a different team of animals. It's not the same team of animals, but you're all working towards the same goal, right? So it's, I don't know, it's wh- where those boundaries are is really, really interesting, really messy. I mean, in my story that I told today, like Carrie was not part of the subgroup of people who were in charge of minority student recruitment or underrepresented student recruitment. It was just like such a big event. A lot of other people just showed up to help out. Right. And so like she joined the team because the leader of the team checked out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so like because she was part of this broader, more loosely affiliated set of people working towards a similar goal, she hopped on to the more immediate team. I mean, so there are these like layers of teamwork and you can see Dumbledore managing this, as you said, right? Like he's forcing Sirius and Snape to shake hands. He says, like, for now, I'll accept just giving up open hostility because we have to be working together. But that's clearly something very different than the level of trust and intimacy between, say, Dumbledore and Arthur or Bill and Molly, right? Like (laughs) who are working together in a more intimate way and loyal to each other in a different way too, right? Yeah. I think the reason that I don't want to call them a team is that they don't have distinct roles yet. Hmm. Yeah. In professional baseball, right? Like you get traded for money. And I think that there's something to it. But you're a team because you all know your roles. You all have the same goal. And the first baseman knows what he's there to do. And the center fielder knows what he's there to do. And they all have roles toward this common goal. And this just still, like, they might be a team one day. But, like, right now... They're just, like, people who all hate Voldemort. I don't know. It's like, like, were people at the Women's March a team? Like, they're all people who hated the election of Trump. But, like, it seems like there needs to be something more. I think that's really right. There is something about, like, assigning a role within the organization, which is part of what makes a team work. Right? Because... I think so. Because, yeah, I think that's right. Right. Carrie, you had a role and Carrie was like, now it's my role. But there was always a clear role, even though it would switch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're talking about professional baseball. I'm coaching Little League Baseball right now. And it's actually really similar. We get children, (laughs) nine-year-olds kind of randomly chosen to to play on this team. And a lot of these kids have never played baseball before. So they really don't know what, like, they don't know their role. Like they're fighting yeah. each other over the ball in the out when they're playing defense <laughs> in the outfield. Part of being a team is actually teaching folks. Like if they th- all think, oh, the goal is to get the ball, then right. they all run for the ball together and on the same team fight each other to try to get the ball before the other one because they they share a goal, but they don't know their roles within the system. And part of yeah. making them work as a team is helping them understand, okay, if you're in this position, this is your role to try to facilitate what we all want together, which is to crush the Marlins. <laughs> right. Because they're from down the block, and so Which, they... To send the other nine-year-olds home crying. <laughs> that's, that's the goal. 
Yeah. And so maybe it's like you're a team with a shared goal, but you can only have team work, which is our theme. Yes. When they're also assigned roles, yeah. you know, and roles are going to get assigned, but they're always going to remain ambiguous, right? Sirius is like, really? My role is to offer a house? And like, that's it? And Dumbledore never says to Sirius, look, you're rich and you got to offer a house and that's all you got. But there is a moment where it's clear in this chapter that Snape's role is distinct. And I think you're right that it's distinct but fluid, right? And Dumbledore even says to Snape, you know what you have to do. And Snape is like, yep. And that is an incredible amount of clarity that it doesn't even need to get reiterated. Yeah, I think that's right. I I think calling us back away from just thinking about team on its own towards teamwork, which is the theme of the episode, is really important because the team only works when people know how they relate to each other. Right. It's not just about having goals, how we relate to each other. And part of what Dumbledore is doing as he's pulling together this team in the middle and end of this chapter is he's starting to put people in their roles. He says to Molly, you know, Arthur's on board, right? Snape, you know what to do. Sirius, get over yourself for a moment and just allow Snape to be on the team. Like everyone has to like come into their position. So this will work because we need this to work. Right. And. Like, all of you have different skills, right? Right. Or gifts. Serious, the gift you have is that you can be a dog. Yeah. So keep Harry company and protect him. Yeah. And I think that leads to, like, another question or situation around teams and teamwork in the chapter. Like, one of the moments where we have a dispute comes between Cornelius and Dumbledore. Cornelius storms into the hospital wing, like, really urgently, right? And we learn that he has brought a Dementor into Hogwarts because... He's learned about Barty Crouch Jr. and he's trying to restrain or apprehend Barty Crouch Jr. And it all goes wrong and the Dementor sucks the soul out of Barty, which is sort of a disaster because there's no way to interrogate. There's no way to learn more from Barty Crouch beyond the fact that it might be a moral disaster. It's also just like a strategic disaster for everyone. And Dumbledore is kind of justifiably upset and they have this confrontation. They have this this argument. And, and part of the argument is Who's on whose team? Dumbledore says, right, like, you should never have put your lot in with the Dementors. Now that Voldemort is back, they will not be loyal to you. They always have been and will be loyal to him. And he also says, we need to reach out to the Giants. Because even though we've mistreated them and uh, banished them or whatever, like, they can be part of our response. They can be part of our team. And Fudge just, he literally says, like, you are mad you have lost all sense of reason. Because obviously the Dementors are on our team and obviously the Giants could never be on our team. And and this is part of where their argument happens and part of where we see sort of this arising, emerging conflict between Dumbledore and those who are working against Voldemort's return and the Ministry, which is going to resist the reality of it for so long. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. The Dementors trip me up, right? I think that the reason that they will instantly be on Voldemort's side is because they're on their own side. Whoever's going to let them suck out more souls, that's who they want to be working for. And Voldemort is going to make them a better offer. But I don't love the idea that there's like a whole type of creature that exists like this. And I don't know how to think about it. I don't know if everything in Harry Potter is trying to map on to something in the real world. But saying there's a whole race of people who aren't going to be on our side seems bad to me. Yeah, one of the complaints I have about the Harry Potter series is that, like, the evil is too simple, it seems like. And by simple, I mean not simple, like, in the straightforward or, like, easy sense but simple is just like it's just not complicated enough it's not fraud enough it's not you know what i mean like you see a character like snape who we have our complaints about but you can see there there are complicated emotions there are things that push him to do good things and not so good things throughout and right like when you have figures like the dementors which are creatures which are just like embodiments of evil or even voldemort in the form that voldemort eventually takes or is taking now in this novel like they become like these specters of evil it makes me think we lift up evil as something which is obvious to us and outside of us that it can become like this really obvious target for us all to work together towards when actually evil is is dispersed 
and complicated and more present in all of us and in the world around us and harder to identify and harder to recognize as like these obvious monsters like the Dementors of Voldemort are. And I think that might be relevant when we think about teamwork because it's like if a Dementor walked into the middle of Harvard Yard or mm-hmm. a snake-like figure arose from a cauldron in the middle of Harvard Yard, like it would be really easy for us all at the university, even those who have disagreements, to like look at this figure and be like, okay, we can all agree we're opposed to that thing. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. That is clearly wrong. But that's not the form it takes. Now, on the other hand, part of the tension in this situation we're describing is that the ministry has brought the Dementors along. Like they are choosing yeah. to look past their obvious evil because they're like, oh, they can help us, right? So it may be easy to like judge the wizarding world because they should recognize these Dementors as obviously evil, but they don't. Right. And but we can from the outside because they look at them. They got creepy decomposing like fingers and scary gowns or robes or whatever. But, you know, maybe if we were able to step outside of our own world and look at our own world from the similar perspective, we might see that there are people and institutions and forces of evil in our own world that should be obvious to us, but that we make our own kind of agreements with or we kind of look the other way and partner with the same way the ministry is doing that. But it should be said that, right, like. Dumbledore makes a special situation of Dementors because he is willing to work on a team with everybody else, right? With giants, with whichever werewolves will come to his team. All these other oppressed classes that the mainstream wizarding world seems to have like a deep xenophobia about, Dumbledore is like, no, if they are willing to be on our team and work toward this shared goal, then they are welcome. Yeah. I think that's right. And and that includes, to some degree, it includes even Cornelius, right? I mean, yeah. towards the end of the chapter, when when it becomes clear that Cornelius does not believe Harry, does not believe Dumbledore, has been reading Rita Skeeter, thinks that this is all nonsense, Dumbledore says to Fudge, like, we have to part ways because I do believe, we do believe, and we are going to get to work trying to resist this. And if you're not, I can't spend any more energy trying to convince you. We can't work together on the same team. This isn't going to be teamwork. But he also says, like, less than a page later, just like a couple paragraphs later, he says, like, the fact that I've said we're parting ways doesn't mean, like, you're my enemy now or that we're on opposing teams, right? He says, as long as you are against Voldemort, we remain on the same side, right? I mean, interestingly, in in the UK, side is a, a synonym for team, right? Like, the you talk about a football side or whatever, right? Like, hmm. we're on the same team. But we're not going to be able to work together. And I think Dumbledore is rightly concerned that that's a problem because we will be more effective if we work together. But we're not going to wait for you to get to work. And those of us who are willing to work together are going to do so. There is going to be the subunit that is using teamwork that is trying to resist. Yeah. So you can have a shared goal and sort of look at the other person and be like, okay, are we both going for this? But not necessarily be on the same team. It's interesting, right? I mean, this is going back a few chapters, but Cedric and Harry did this. They were on different teams, right? They were on like Hufflepuff and Gryffindor. And then they were like, hey, it's going to be a victory for Hogwarts. And so they sort of like changed their team. And I think that that's what Fudge and Dumbledore are managing. They're like, well, we're both anti-Voldemort, but that's only going to bring us so far. And at a different point, we're actually going to be on different teams. And it's sort of a poignant moment at the end of the chapter because Harry realizes that him asking Cedric to grab the cup with him leads to Cedric's death. He kind of has this epiphany at the end of the chapter like, oh, if I had done something differently, like Cedric would be alive, right? Yeah. Speaking about this thing about teamwork and working together and so forth, 
we referred to it in our 30-second recaps, but I think there's also something to be said for Dumbledore forcing Harry basically to re-traumatize himself and tell the story again. Ugh. Maybe Dumbledore believes it when he says it, but he says, like, you know, I wish I could make you go to sleep and delay when you have to say it, but it'd be better if you say it now. And that's not true. No! <laughs> right? That's not. And it's also not true that having said it when he goes back, he's like, now listen, Molly, he's been through enough. He can't say it again. Like, if Harry wants to tell Molly, then that she's the one he should tell, right? Like, that's yeah. this idea of working together as a team and knowing your role and this kind of thing. You know, one of the things that's emerging here again, and as we've seen in previous books, and as we will definitely see in the next books, is Dumbledore is using Harry. And Harry doesn't always know his role in this teamwork. He doesn't actually know the role he is playing, but Dumbledore does. And sometimes he does things which are harmful to Harry because he thinks it advances the full plan without Harry's knowledge or consent. And this is one, because it's just not true that he should say it now, even if he doesn't want to. And it's also not true that he shouldn't say it to Molly later if he did want to, right? It's just he wants the information now. He Dumbledore feels like, for strategic reasons, he needs the information. He and Sirius need the information immediately. And so he makes Harry tell him. Yeah, I really don't like the way Dumbledore treats Harry in this chapter at any point. And again, it's this, like, shared goal, but I don't feel like you care about his well-being. And, like, maybe that is teamwork. Is like, there are going to be people on your team who you don't necessarily like, but hey, it's your pitcher, and so it's your job to, like, be behind them in case they miss the throw, whatever it is. But I couldn't help but feel in this reading, like, this kid keeps getting drugged in weird ways. And, like, even Fox, I'm like, can we ask his permission before Fox heals him? And, like, it's this weird truth-telling thing, and then he's given a sleeping draft, and then he's given more of a sleeping draft. I don't know. It just feels like his consent is not asked for in yeah. any moment here. And the other thing that I just, I don't know why this bothered me so much, but I do think part of being on a team is sort of like recognizing when your teammate does something really well, right? Yeah. And again, to use baseball, you like run out of the dugout after a great hit and you're like, oh my God. And Dumbledore says this thing where he's like, you have been as brave as an adult. And I'm like, no, he hasn't. He has been as brave as a hero. Are you flipping kidding me with this as brave as an adult? It would be like someone hitting a home run and the coach being like, that was a good hit. It's like, no, no, no. Being part of a team means like acknowledging successes and asking if the other person is okay and Dumbledore is not on a team. He has a shared goal and is willing to manipulate people to do it. I just think that he's not being a very good manager. Like, he's not letting people know their roles, right? They they have roles. He's the only one that knows them. That's the problem, right? And so instead of building trust among people and everyone understanding their respective roles, they're, they're not. The other thing about this chapter, and, you know, you were talking about how disappointed you are in Dumbledore. Not more than disappointed, like disturbed yes. by how Harry is treated. Like, a lot of this chapter reads like a couple generations ago's response to trauma. Like the 80s and 90s response to trauma, <laughs> right? Like, talk when I want you to talk, but don't talk otherwise. Stifle it. Cover it up. Don't process it the way you want to process it. Process the way I tell you you should process it. It kind of dates itself as like a very late 90s sort of how we ought to respond to trauma, what the best practices are with respect to trauma, and which we now know, I think, that these are not 
These are not good practices. Vanessa, now it's time for our sacred reading practice. This week, once again, we are using the Four Reliances, which is a Buddhist interpretive practice that comes out of the Tibetan Buddhist interpretive tradition. The Four Reliances is a four-step process, kind of like Ardes and kind of like Lectio Divina, but the steps are a little bit different, so I'll walk you through it again. And I've selected a passage from the end of the chapter that we can consider together. So this comes right at the end of the chapter after Fudge has awarded Harry his winnings from the Four Wizard Tournament. I don't want that gold, said Harry in an expressionless voice. You have it. Anyone can have it. I shouldn't have won it. It should have been Cedric's. The thing against which he had been fighting on and off ever since he had come out of the maze was threatening to overpower him. He could feel a burning, prickling feeling in the inner corners of his eyes. He blinked and stared up at the ceiling. It wasn't your fault, Harry, Mrs. Weasley whispered. I told him to take the cup with me, said Harry. Now the burning feeling was in his throat, too. He wished Ron would look away. So the Four Alliances is a sacred reading practice where we try to like get to the deepest meaning of a text, especially when meanings are unclear. And so the first step in the Four Alliances is that we're supposed to rely on the message of the teacher, not on their personality. So the teaching is like you can get distracted by the way a thing is told, but what you really need to pay attention is what's being told. And so the way we do this in our community with our sacred reading practice here at Harry Potter, the Sacred Text, is try to think about what this passage says to us directly. Not how the passage speaks within the text, but how it speaks in our own life to us. So Vanessa, what speaks to you from this passage? I love two things in this passage, I think. One is the description of what it's like to be in that place where you're about to cry. And Mm. like, right, just this like very somatic description of like, it's in my eyes, now it's in my throat. And the text never says like, and now Harry is crying because it's sort of from Harry's point of view. And so we don't know the extent to which like tears are falling. His experience is this like physical, now I'm feeling this in my eyes, now I'm feeling this in my throat. But the other is this moment where Molly is trying to lessen Harry's pain with this very true thing. Like this is not your fault, right? Like that was a beautiful instinct in Harry and this is Voldemort's fault. Yeah. And Molly, just this maternal instinct to try to take the pain away from a child or this friend instinct to try to take the pain away. And you can't. And I just, it's such an important instinct. And yeah, even though we know it's going to fail, we just have to say it anyway. Yeah. What about you? Vanessa, I think the thing that I'm thinking about or that spoke to me was related, but it was less from like the consoling side and more from like Harry's side, right? Like I've had a couple moments in my life where like something really bad happened that if I had done something differently, it wouldn't have happened that way. And it wasn't necessarily my responsibility. Like it's Voldemort's fault here, right? But there's also just a fact about the past that if I had just made a different decision, things would have gone differently. And I could not have known to make that decision. I don't feel responsible in that way. But there also is just like deep sense of regret and responsibility 
which I can really hear in Harry. Like, whatever she says, he has to think to himself, but the past might have been different. If I just done this different thing. And that's just like a weird feeling of responsibility. It's not fault. It's not like you think he knows that he's not the evil one and that Voldemort is. But like, it's just like that sense of like, oh, I wish I could just go back. I wish I could just go back and do one thing a little bit different because then everything would be different. Like that sense of deep regret and personal regret separate from responsibility there there's something really true in that that speaks to me too it's about like the irrevocability of the past right like there's so many things in our lives that we wish we could do over even if we don't feel necessarily like it was our fault we wish we could do them over because the world might be different because others might suffer less and i really hear that in harry's voice and it goes along with that's what molly's trying to say to him this wasn't your fault but it's not just fault that he's regretting now it's just that the world has come to be the world that it is and that he might have been otherwise if things had just gone slowly different. Yeah. So the second step of the four alliances is to rely on the meaning of the passage, not on the words. The way we interpret this in our practice is that we try to think about, you know, what the passage would have us do rather than know. So we're trying to go deeper again. So like, is the passage calling us to do something, not just to understand something about this text, but to do something in our own lives? So what about that, Vanessa? I mean, Harry doesn't need the money, but the passage starts with, I don't want that gold. And, you know, this is something that we discuss behind the scenes on the podcast of like, I don't want that advertiser. I don't want that money. And it's hard, right? Like, we employ people and we need money, (laughs) but we don't want that money. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that this passage would have us do, right? Like if the money is going to be something that later is going to make you want to cry, right? Is going to like make you have this tingle in your throat, then you don't want that money. And there's just like an actual sacrifice here. This is like a political like move where he's yeah. giving in a way that hurts. And again, it's it's not Ron saying no to money. It's not someone without money who's saying no to money. So it's easier for him. But it's still a sacrifice. What about for you? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's, there's a little bit of a hippogriff in the room, right? When we think about this too, which is that like, I don't know that we're on the same team as J.K. Rowling with a lot of things. And you and I have reflected, the team, the whole Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team in the past has reflected upon like, should we keep doing this? What does it mean to be part of this community, right? And this idea of like, where is our responsibility to begin? Where does it end? Should we take the money? What will that be signifying to others and to ourselves about where our values are? These are complicated things, and it's exactly what Harry's going through. And, I, you know, I think about it, too, in my position at Harvard. You know, we, we've spoken about this on the podcast before. We had a special episode about it. About a year ago right now, actually, the university released its Legacy of Slavery report when it kind of documented as clearly as it could at the time, although new information is always coming out, our historical relationship to slavery. And that's euphemizing it, like the fact that slaves and investments in the slave trade helped to build this university. And then I think we really have to think about, okay, if that's true, this is the wealthiest educational institution in the world. Like, what are we doing with this money? Like, how are we using it? How ought we to use it? And thinking really deliberately about that and responsibly about that, 
is what we ought to do. And, you know, Harry, who's 14, just already has this moral intuition, already knows, like, actually, the money means something. Taking it, not taking it. My relationship to it signifies something about my sense of responsibility. And whether or not it was my fault in the sense that Molly means, I do have some responsibility here. And that means I have to relate to the rewards of it differently. Rewards is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? It feels like a reward, which is why Harry doesn't want it. The third step in the four alliances is that we rely on the real meaning of the passage, not the provisional meaning. You know, all of these things are pointing towards a similar um, approach, but what this step is trying to ask us to do is to go to like the deep truth of the passage. So this is kind of like the sod from Pardis, right? Like what's the like the, the deep, the deep truth that lies underneath maybe even all our interpretive sort of considerations. So let me read the passage one more time to remind us all. I don't want that gold, said Harry in an expressionless voice. You have it. Anyone can have it. I shouldn't have won it. It should have been Cedric's. The thing against which he had been fighting on and off ever since he had come out of the maze was threatening to overpower him. He could feel a burning, prickling feeling in the inner corners of his eyes. He blinked and stared up at the ceiling. It wasn't your fault, Harry, Mrs. Weasley whispered. I told him to take the cup with me, said Harry. Now the burning feeling was in his throat, too. He wished Ron would look away. Oh, Matt, that I wish Ron would look away moment really stuck Mm. with me this time. It's so beautiful that Ron's not looking away. And like, I understand Harry's instinct of like, I wish he would. But Ron is like, is sitting there and is like trying to just see his friend through all of his pain and isn't saying anything and isn't looking away. And like, we know Ron well enough to know he's not looking at Harry like a zoo animal, right? He's not gawking. He's just like really trying. And, you know, obviously for Harry's sake, I wish Ron would like literally look away so Harry could have some privacy. But this instinct in Ron is really beautiful, I think. What about you? Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm glad you pointed to that moment in this passage. Because I know that Harry wants Ron to look away, but there's also something important about him not looking away. Because Harry has just said something true, which points to the thing I was saying before, which is like, maybe it wasn't his fault, but if he had done things differently, this wouldn't have happened. And I think Harry wants Ron to look away because he doesn't want anybody to know that that he could have done things differently, that, that maybe he could have changed, right? Like, but there's something about a friend just being there for you, whatever you have done. Like... If Ron looks away, it almost verifies Harry's sense of guilt. It almost vindicates that sense. But Ron refusing to, just saying, like, listen, whatever's happened, I'm here with you because I'm your friend. Although it's not what Harry wants in that moment, I think in the long run it's what Harry needs because he needs to know that he's going to make mistakes, there are going to be regrets that they have, but it's this kind of loyalty that they have to each other, which is the deeper thing. And maybe that is the deeper meaning of this, like talking about relationship, talking about loyalty, talking about responsibility. And relating it to everything we said about teamwork, partly it's just about like being there for each other, even when the world has gone a way we would not have wished, a way we should have worked against or would have worked against had we known, to know that, that those others are there with you and for you, that's really what's at stake in this passage. So the last of the four steps of the four reliances is that we're supposed to rely on our wisdom, not our reason. Again, the passage is not about like, understanding in the simple sense it's actually about your own experiences your life and so this step we ask to share an experience from our own life that this passage reminds us of vanessa does this remind you of anything in your life 
It reminds me of like a very strange moment I had this morning. So my brothers are Foo Fighter obsessives. They love this band. I love Foo Fighters too. Just I'm not as obsessed. But I've gone to concerts with them and going to Foo Fighters concerts with my brothers is some of my fondest memories. And we always really loved Travis, the drummer, and he recently died. And Foo Fighters put out their first song since Travis died. And it's really beautiful and it's about grief and how grief haunts us and how you move on and feel guilty about moving on, but how you never really move on. And I really just started crying when I wondered who was drumming on the song. And just like that song in general, that you can miss someone and know you'll move on and all of the complicated feelings around grief and guilt. Hmm. What about you? Yeah, actually, it reminded me of the situation. I knew someone once who was like a an indirect witness of a violent act mm-hmm. and didn't see it going on, but heard it going on, but had misgivings about police involvement just because of where they were and the people who were involved. And so they they reached out to a hotline. This person acted immediately, but the person who was attacked ended up dying. And in the wake of it, the friend of mine couldn't stop thinking about, like, if I had just done something differently. Yeah. If I hadn't had this other kind of caution and worry and had made a different choice. And the truth is this person didn't know, yeah. right? Like, based on the information they had, they called who they thought would be the safest and best resource. Yeah. And they also didn't know if they had done something different, if the outcome had been different. But I could really sympathize with that person, like, wondering the what if. Like, what if I had done something differently? And it was... You know, kind of like with Molly here, there was limited help in saying, like, you couldn't have known or it wasn't your fault. Because that's not actually what the person was saying. They didn't believe it was their fault. They know that they were not the attacker. There's just this deep sense of regret. Like, I wish the world could be different than it is. I wish I could go back knowing what I know now and try something else, you know? And there wasn't much to do except just, like, say, like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I wish you could go back and try something else, too. And to, to try to communicate to that person without judgment. Like, not you should have done this. Why didn't you do this? But I also wish we all had a do-over. Yeah, That's a hard space to be in, and I really feel like Harry and, and Molly are in that space now. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And now we have a voice memo from Batul. Hi, Vanessa and Matt. My name is Batul. I'm calling from Kuwait. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can read the theme of disability in the Harry Potter series. I'm a South Asian woman with albinism, and as I reread the books as an adult, I found something deeply troubling. The visiting world seems to be a place where the rules of magic dictate that disability exists only as a result of dark magic and evil intent, and must somehow contaminate a part or the whole of the person's character. For example, of the two werewolves we meet, Lupin lives most of his life hiding his condition from a deeply stigmatizing society. Even when he finds friends and a support system that cares for him, he is not at peace with himself and does not even survive in the new era of hope after Voldemort's defeat. The other is a two-dimensional vicious monster, Fenrir Greyback. Pettigrew maims himself in the service of dark magic, only to be rewarded with an arm that is not loyal to his own mind, but to Voldemort's. Moody, Bill, and George are irrevocably disfigured because of dark magic. As a disabled person living in a deeply ableist world, I find this deeply troubling. The narrative seems to crassly recreate stigmatizing stereotypes about disabled lives that we're inherently damaged, victims and accomplices to tragedy, evil, and ill luck, to be pitied. And if we somehow do succeed and do good in the world, it is inspirational and done in spite of our disability. Disabilities are neither curses nor superpowers. They're facts of life that society must learn to view with clear eyes, kindness, and a sense of equality. Disabled lives, I know, can be rich, messy, and beautiful on their own terms. And I hope even in the visiting world. Love to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you for the brilliant work you do with the podcast and blessings for everyone on the team. Batul, thank you so much for that really beautiful and thoughtful and brilliant voicemail. I just really appreciate people like you who are reframing disability in this productive and honest and frank way. And I completely agree that this is another place where the Harry Potter books fail us and just lean into stereotypes rather than moving us along to a better way of thinking. But luckily, we have you. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Batul. I agree with Vanessa completely. This is such an important and insightful, critical reading of the Harry Potter books, and I'm really grateful for it. It's now time for us to remember members of our community who've been loved and lost. Brianna Jai, who was 16, a beautiful British transgender girl taken by bullies a larger-than-life character who would leave a lasting impression on all who met her. All seven Jones Angel babies, 
unborn, never held, but always loved. Bettina Brown Funk, timeless, mother of many, wife to one. And John Bannon, who was 96, the best storyteller, a lover of Irish whiskey, and eternal optimist. May their memories be a blessing. Matt, who would you like to offer a blessing for in the chapter this week? I'd like to bless Snape this week for that moment we've talked about a couple of times where Dumbledore basically says, okay, you knew this was coming. Now it's time to do what you have to do. And Snape does, and we know what Snape's going to go do. And I feel like the next 48 to 72 hours are pretty, pretty frightening. I mean, he goes pale when Dumbledore says this to him and we know where he's going and we readers know who he's going to meet now and what it's going to initiate in the next three books. Snape's a complicated character. There's lots not to like in Snape, but we can still bless him for what he has to go do right now. How about you, Vanessa? Who do you want to bless? I want to bless Bill for this like tiny moment. Dumbledore says Arthur needs to be told and Bill is like, I'll do it. And I, I love it because I think we often, when something really big and horrible happens, we want to be helpful and we don't know how, and we want to be helpful in a big way. And Bill's just like, I'll go deliver a message, right? And like, that is so helpful. And it's just, he's like grabbed onto the small thing that he can do. I think it's really beautiful. So I want to bless Bill for that. Vanessa, next week we're going to be reading book four, chapter 37, The Beginning. And it's the last chapter in the book, so we'll be reading it through the theme of love. This has been a Not Sorry production. Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Pazau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Batool for their voicemail. Lara Glass, Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Wilson, Nucky Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Trakyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. And if it had just been me there, right? Like, I needed a team. I would have failed utterly. There would have been chaos. There would have been a trough. There would have been, yes. Just put a put a big bucket of baked beans out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>